Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We get lucky, and what we mean is we have to get to Friday with 75% of the vote counted. All eyes will be on Pennsylvania, after Wisconsin, after Nevada, after Michigan, and we get further lucky because I knew President Trump would win when I saw the map of Bucks County and Montgomery County four years ago. Mark Schweiker joins us. He is from Bucks County. He has provided leadership in Montgomery County, and he's a former governor of Pennsylvania, now with Ren Matrix. Governor, wonderful to have you with us this morning. You have observed the dynamics of a Bucks in Montgomery County 2020. Is it the same as 2016? Now, I've got to say, four years later, it, it, there was this discernible drop among, and we, we've all heard this, this handicapping among uh, suburban women in, in Bucks and Montgomery County. Uh, yet, uh, you know, a, a Donald Trump, as we know, he's a fierce campaigner and made up uh, for, that, for that reduction in the suburban counties across Pennsylvania, because I believe Democratic women uh, in, in many, many rural hustings, many rural locations uh, went with Donald Trump to make up for that. But now, as uh, we've already observed, it, it moves from the, you know, the, the, uh, the voting machines to uh, a judicial courtroom. You and Tom Ridge went up against Ed Rendell. And of course, that's the power politics of Philadelphia. There's Pittsburgh as well. Are we going to see the same polarized Biden support in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, that we observe in Detroit and Milwaukee? My sense is uh, that the election platform in Philadelphia uh, is essentially a, a safe and valid one. Uh, yet uh, that jurisdiction, and for that matter, every other county in Pennsylvania has never been through this large influx of write-in ballots. So even with the best of intentions, uh, they've got to be monitored as far as uh, the accuracy of, of the vote. And, I, and I'm sure that both the Biden campaign forces and the Trump campaign forces will be uh, making moves this morning immediately to uh, monitor th that process. Because as we see in Michigan or in Wisconsin, and particularly dramatically so in Pennsylvania, large number of write-in votes, uh, write-in ballots. It's going to take a long time to, to get to a conclusion. So to me, uh, you know, that's got to be monitored. And I, I, I think it's going to be done safely. Governor, early voting, a massive feature of this election, really picking up. And I wonder, it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Is there a better way of accounting for these votes as they come through counting them in a more efficient way? Or do we just have to get used to waiting for the elections that come in four years, eight years, 12? Yeah, I, I, I think that I, it can be made more efficient. Uh, you know, one county in particular in Pennsylvania, and there are, you know, you know, the, the geographic makeup, rural, suburban, urban counties. The technology is, is there regardless of where you are. Some counties have you know, managed to, for example, uh, you know, given the emphasis on security and opening two envelopes, but th there there is machinery for quickly opening envelopes without jeopardizing ballot security. So I think one by one by one, these counties will adopt that and it will come 
uh, more quickly for sure. Yeah, I know that uh, Tom Keene's favorite story of the day was Green Bay running out of ink and having to pause some of the ballot counting, talking about old technology. Uh, Governor, about 20 minutes ago, we got uh, data on the U.S. economy showing that the U.S. added fewer jobs than expected uh, in October. This was not something people were focused on, and yet it is the issue. There needs to be a recovery from the steepest recession, if the shortest, since the Great Depression. Just can you speak about what's needed and how likely we could get uh, the support needed with a split government, with, say, uh, a Republican Senate uh, and a potential Democratic president? Well, process-wise, Lisa, it, it's hard to see in the, in the immediate weeks to come, uh, you know, that the, the, the coming together of Democratic and Republican leadership in Washington, D.C. You know, I hope I'm wrong, but ultimately, and, and this is the upshot of my uh, op reaction, is, is that I think we do have uh, the consensus around a broad, meaningful stimulus package. Um, so, you know, the sooner they get to that, I think we really kick off uh, the, the surge and the uptick in the American economy. I do think we get, you know, the jobs returning and, and the paychecks. So uh, it, it, it's hard to kind of ponder and assess that possibility on this Wednesday morning here on the East Coast as we go into this uh, judicial battle over uh, ballots and so on. But, and I'll add this, I, I think I'd like to see uh, an emphasis on, you know, what they call the, the next normal. Uh, in the next normal, whenever that might uh, unfold, and I hope it's soon to your question, is, is that there'd be a heavy emphasis on workforce training and retraining uh, and reskilling opportunities. Uh, we're going to need that, that heavy emphasis uh, across the country and in each state. Mm -hmm. Uh, regardless of who takes the oath on January 20th, just a few weeks from now. Governor, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mark Schweiker with us, the former Pennsylvania governor. Right now, Christopher Harvey joins. He is with Wells Fargo and head of equity strategy with a real focus on disciplined portfolios. Christopher, how do you be disciplined with an election chaos? What is the to-do today for our listeners on radio and TV to be disciplined given the angst that's out there? So uh, let me start with this. I think Kevin and John had hit it right. And I think what I want to play upon is the Senate. To us, yes, the presidency is important. But we think that the Senate is even more important. That's where fiscal stimulus comes into play. That's where taxes come into play. And if, if the GOP is going to control it, what we have to think about, what we have to believe is any sort of stimulus is going to be rather skinny and taxes in all likelihood are not going to change. And, and so when we think about the capital markets, when we think about what's going to go forward, we could see a bit of a pullback because one, this was unexpected. And two, the stimulus that we thought we were going to get will probably be much less and much later. But longer term, we're going to see gridlock, and we think gridlock is good. We're not going to see higher taxes. But more importantly, the underlying fundamentals of the economy are quite good. We have very easy first-half comps for many companies. We have low funding costs. But more importantly, large sections of the U.S. consumer is in very good shape. And that's something we don't typically see post-recession, where people want to spend. They can spend, they want to spend. Typically, it's a much more depressed attitude and mentality. It's more of a cash and can good type mentality or a bunker mentality. 
and that should not be uh, underappreciated. Chris, uh, a lot of people were coming into this saying that the outcome that we are now looking at, the potential for a, uh, a Senate that is Republican and an undetermined uh, presidency, would be negative for the reflation trade, would ultimately be negative for risk assets. Today, we're not seeing that. Does it at least challenge the theory of the rotation into, say, financials, since we're seeing a flattening yield curve and some of these other cyclicals? Well, uh, a couple things there. So, Last time I looked at futures, um, small cap futures were down or in the negative, and you saw NASDAQ futures up. Uh, as you pointed out before, um, if we look at bond yields in the shape of the yield curve, rates have come down, the curve has flattened. That's not great for financials. What we are seeing, the knee-jerk reaction is somewhat positive or relatively positive for technology. The reinflation trade does have to take a step back, and, and perhaps we'll see finesse, some air come out of the financials, some air come out of small caps. But longer term, the underlying fundamentals for the economy and for many stocks is still quite good. Chris, bullish, no matter what the outcome is. Chris Harley, <laughs> Wells Fargo Securities Head of Equity Strategy. Jim Bianco is with Bianco Research. He writes a hugely coveted research note synthesizing markets into our political moment, and he joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Jim, there's just so many themes going on here. So let me ask you what I just alluded to. On the view forward for Congress, how do you invest forward to 2022? Well, that's going to be tough, especially if you think that Washington is going to be as important as everybody thinks, because there's no clarity yet coming out of Washington. But if you put that aside, you are left with a couple of troubling issues that are out there. It's going to be no fiscal stimulus that should slow the economy. Remember the virus that used to be important. Yesterday was another record day for cases in Europe and almost in the United States, one of the two highest days that we've ever had, that portends a economy that is going to continue to struggle as we move forward from here. And that pretends that without any kind of clarity from Congress, support for the economy is not going to come. It might come down to the Federal Reserve that meets today and tomorrow. So, Jim, I'm looking right now at 10-year Treasury yields, and John Farrow has done a great job of talking about the swing. Uh, it has, uh, you've seen yields come in the most at one point since April. Is this a trend to bet on? Basically, the consensus was wrong heading into this election, that you're actually going to see lower yields ahead? I think over the short term, you're going to see a correction in yields, and they're going to move lower. But I, I'm still of the opinion that the March 9th low of 33 basis points in the 10-year was the end of the bull market for bonds. And what we're going to have is a corrective phase now. And that if you want to look out six or nine months, I know it's hard to look out past six or nine hours, <laughs> you're probably going to have much higher yields into the summer of 2021 on the back of a potential move higher in inflation. Not a big move higher in inflation, <clears throat> but know, I still think that's coming. What's great about this, John Farrow, is if Bianco's only day trading for six or nine hours, he's a candidate to be on the real yield. I've got a time horizon of five minutes right now. Jim Bianco was on real yield last week, Tom. Keep up. <laughs> oh, well, I haven't watched it Jim, yet. It's in my YouTube up. file. <laughs> Jim, yesterday I asked the following question. If I could tell you the result four years ago, 24 hours ahead of time, would you have put on the right trade? So many people wrote back and said no. If I could have told you how things would develop overnight into this morning, 24 hours ago, you might have had Treasury's bid. Would you have equities up 58 on the S&P 500, advancing 1.7 percent? 
No, I would not. And, you know, to be fair about what's happening with equities is they were up 2% overnight and then gave it all back. And now they're up 2% again. And don't forget that last week we were down 5.6%, one of the biggest weekly declines we've seen since the dark days of March. So there's probably a little bit of an oversold bounce going on in equities. But I'm not convinced that even with the strong bid today, they're going to reverse all of last week and they are ready to poise yeah. to go higher. I think they're going to have a slog from here and move sideways with a lot of volatility. Jim, it's great to catch up, as always. Good to hear from you. Jim Bianco there of Bianco Research. Right now, we are going to rip up the script, and we're going to do this with great respect for what John is observing in London of continental Europe. Julie Norman was to be with us on this election and on the politics of the moment, but she, she is truly one of our experts on violence and nonviolence in societies. Uh, she's really done an extraordinary job over that, over the years on that. She is at UCL in London. And John, I just think with the terror attempts in Vienna that we've seen, and in Nice twice now, maybe three times, and Lyon the other day, John, it's really important to address this for our European audience. Well, Professor, let's just start with the election itself, and then maybe Tom can move us over to Europe briefly. Professor, your reaction on the events of this morning? Well, you know, I don't think what we're seeing today is too much of a surprise. This is certainly a scenario that we knew was very possible. We knew that there probably would not or would likely not be a firm decision on election night as we're used to. So the fact that the race is taking longer, the fact that we're seeing these procedural delays in terms of counting the mail-in ballots is something that was pretty expected. Of course, it's a lot tighter than the Biden campaign would hope. Um, I think the Trump campaign took a lot of confidence from that initial boost of Florida. But right now, like everyone, we're just waiting to see what happens. Julie, what is so important here with your acclaimed expertise on terror is the idea, and the president, of course, has spoken about this quite clearly. He's got a very strong opinion about it in America as well. What does a European society or an American society do about the threat of violence? What's the Norman prescription? Well, Tom, I think that the threat of political violence is always present. And, of course, we've witnessed that in Europe in the last few weeks in the incidents in France and Austria in particular. And we've heard a lot in the U.S. also about the risk of potential violence after the election as well. However, I think it's really notable that even as polarized as the country is, Election Day went off mostly peacefully. There were very few reported incidents of aggression or of anything getting out of source at any of the polling stations. And I think that afterwards, too, even though emotions will certainly be high, we'll certainly see Americans, as they always do in terms of civic participation, demonstrating, protesting, I don't see the country devolving into violence. And I think that's largely because at the end of the day, most Americans do have faith in our institutions. They do want to believe in the way that the system has been working up until now in terms of keeping things at least moving forward, even if moving forward somewhat, somewhat slowly in an election like this. And I don't see people panicking in the way that we, we've heard some of the rhetoric suggesting. 
Professor, uh, right now where we stand, it looks like the Senate will remain in Republican control. Presidency up for grabs, Biden currently leading when it comes just to the electoral vote count, still a lot to go. If it were beef, if it would be uh, former Vice President Joe Biden who, as the president, but a Republican Senate, how would that affect foreign policy in terms of protectionism, in terms of tariffs and the like? Well, Lisa, I think that's a good question. But one thing to note is that a lot of the foreign policies that Trump put forward, it's not just necessarily their substance, but more of the style in which he went about them that I think Biden would, would pivot from. For example, I believe that Biden would still maintain a tough on China policy, would still push NATO allies to contribute more to the alliance and what have you. But with Biden, we could expect much more of a um, stable, predictable foreign policy, one that's very much cooperative um, with our allies, uh, very much built on multilateral relationships. So in the sense that even if the Senate stayed Republican, some of the policies that are currently in play would not necessarily shift that much, but just the tone in which they were undertaken would be a bit more what we'd expect as normal, so to speak, under Biden. Julie, fantastic to catch up. Appreciate your time this morning. Julie Norman there, University College London professor. Paul Sweeney and I are going to speak with Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners, still recovering from a Dodgers uh, victory uh, in, in, the, in the World Series. He and I went back and forth on that. Well, the, the time is so precious here, Doug. Let's maybe avoid baseball today because the Red Sox are so weak and just get right to the selection. <laughs> Doug, you've done this few few times before. I mean, I remember your playoff, Kennedy Nixon. How right. do you play the equity markets off of the tumult of this election? Um, it's tough. I mean, we don't know really the outcome of the election. Um, there's an English expression that's claimed to be the translation of uh, a traditional Chinese curse. May we live in interesting times, and we clearly live in interesting times. Um, I, I think, as was the case in 2016, uh, the predictive ability of betting shops and internal political forecasts. Um, have both have failed. I think that the two uh, substantive observations I would have is that there was no repudiation of uh, Trump's policy, nor uh, will his um, throng of devotees be cast out as lepers, as some expected. Uh, Trump may be emboldened, but we have a very slim margin, and the makeup of Congress is something of a limiting factor. The second thing, as it relates to the stock market, this is really important, is that the inroads of the progressive left of the Democratic Party were overstated and, round, and roundly renounced in the election. So there's going to be a period of soul-searching, of message and policy recalibration likely lying ahead. But regardless of the outcome, it's clear that our country is divided and the wide-sweeping policy initiatives are unlikely for the Democrats or Republicans over the next several years. So from a stock market uh, standpoint, we have a house divided. It's something of a positive right. for the markets, uh, but it's really close to a non-event, um, um, though I think over the short term, <clears throat> we're going to benefit right. from the unusual poor and defensive and cautious positioning by market participants. The one stat I'll give you is that the ETF put-call ratio was 1.72 yesterday, and that's the highest level since March of 12th, right before an explosive yeah. move high, higher. 
So we also right. have the fact that there's not going to be a capital gains right. tax increase, so we're not going to see the traditional December yeah. selling. Paul, that was Sandy Koufax's ERA in an off year in the 60s, <laughs> exactly. 1.72. Exactly. Doug, it looks like, I mean, if things kind of hold here, I mean, one scenario is uh, a Democratic White House, but uh, uh, a Republican Senate, and even the Democrats in the House, uh, less strong. So does that suggest not much gets done? And if that's the case, what do you do from a stock market perspective? Uh, there's a couple things that I'm doing right now. So um, rather than being um, theoretical, I'll tell you what I'm uh, uh, doing, kinetically speaking. Um, the first thing we've seen is that there's weakness in bank stocks today. Uh, after strength, as we saw a pivot from uh, growth to value in the last couple of weeks, I think it's going to be shortly reversed, and I'm buying aggressively more bank stocks. I think regardless of the presidential outcome, uh, the Republican Party, as I said, is going to control the Senate. And uh, the Democratic Party, as I said, could move towards the center. This means that the fears of tighter and more onerous banking industry legislation are unlikely something that has really weighed on the group, Paul. Yep. Interesting. And so, you know, it's what's your sense as to, I mean, we pivot back. We have to get back to reality at some point. And the reality is there's a raging pandemic out there. The economic impacts uh, likely to continue to weigh on the economy. Uh are you, do you have any changing thoughts as to potential for fiscal stimulus over the next uh, several months? Yeah, I'm, look, I, I spent all year um, unrelentlessly buying the dips. Yep. In fact, right now I have my lowest um, gross exposure on the short side I've had probably in a year or two. Oh, I, I am still between medium-sized and large-sized net long. Um, so I think over the short term we're going to get – uh, you know, have a salutary Im- impact upon the markets. But as you look all into 2021, um, the pandemic is appears that it's going to linger. The stimulus will be delayed both in timing and reduced in size. And uh, unfortunately, uh, small businesses will continue to be gutted along with industries like um, travel, entertainment, yeah. hospitality. So I don't think, Paul, the consensus estimate for S&P earnings uh, of about $170 a share comes to fruition. The positive is that the $15 or $20 that would be lopped off from that because of an increase in corporate tax rates is no longer a factor. And the other positive, of course, is that when you do dividend discount models, you look at the risk-free rate of return. As you can look, as you can see by the TLT and bond yields, that's going ever lower. So that helps valuations. So um, short-term, quite bullish. Uh, Intermediate-term, quite yeah. negative. Doug, how do you play? And this is—I don't mean like trading, like you're talking about your claim, if you will. But how do you play the growthiness of the tech area, et cetera, healthcare maybe as well? With the vaunted shift to small cap, mid cap, and to international, do you buy the story? Um, you mean the pivot from growth to value? Yeah, it's a broad sense. Yeah, I, yeah. Do, I do buy the story with the exception of um, two growth outliers that I'm pretty long. Uh, as you know, Amazon, which was up over $130 this morning, and Google, which is up another $61, which had just exceptional uh, search and advertising results in their earnings uh, released last week. So in the main, uh, I like value over growth, with some except with the two exceptions. Um, so my focus is on um, food, 
package companies, banks on the long side. Um, perhaps even I'm looking for the first time at energy. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. I was just going to ask <laughs> energy. Pick Tell it up, Tell us about Paul. Your, your energy thesis there, <clears throat> Doug, because we, you know, Tom and I, we, we, we search for folks that will talk to us about energy, and they're hard to find. Well, energy is such a small percentage of the S&P yeah. that's become almost irrelevant. Um, you know, I manage money based upon uh, having a calculator in one hand and a contrarian mindset in the other. And um, uh, with the exception of solar, which will be penalized by an apparent Trump victory, <laughs> I do think um, fossil fuels and energy, which is really, really hated, um, is at a valuation divergence against growth and the border market, which is unparalleled. So you could have, uh, uh, again, market participants are, uh, are not positioned in the sector, and I think yeah. that's important as well. Well, one quick question. I, Doug, you're, you're, you're wonderful at not being a yield hog. With energy, the temptation of our listeners to, to go after ExxonMobil with a 10.7% dividend, I would say it's an elegant chart south. What do you do with Exxon? I'm looking at the entire group next time I'm on. I'll tell you what the uh, oh, listen to him. Look at that, Paul. He's pre-booking himself right yep. now. He usually <laughs> does that time. during spring training, but we get it on election day. Doug Cast, too short a visit. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.